0: Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive.
1: Well, welcome everyone to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And hold on to your hats because we are in for a wild ride with this one. We are really blessed to have uh, Joey Coleman with us. He's an award-winning speaker. And he is the author of a book that I know and love was introduced uh, to about a year ago called Never Lose a Customer Again. If you don't have that book, if you and your firm haven't, uh, your business haven't read that yet, that's definitely put it on your quarterly read list with your uh,
2: leadership team. So welcome, Joey. Michael, thank you so much. Super excited to be here with you. And thanks to everybody who uh, chimed in to listen today. Really appreciate it and look forward to the conversation.
1: Great. So, what we typically do the, uh, on the show is we ask the the people joining us to give us the nickel tour. How did you how did you get to where you you got to? Because our journey is all you know. A lot of times, that's some of the most exciting things. That you know, how did I end up? We're doing what I'm doing today.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, re- Crazily enough, for me, the nickel tour is probably closer to $1.85 because it's been an eclectic path, to say the least. But I'll, I'll give you the abbreviated version, and you can pull into whatever pieces you find most interesting. Uh, basically, I studied government and international relations in college, went straight to law school where I studied international law, national security law, uh, and litigation, After that, I was a uh, lawyer. So I worked for the United States Secret Service. I worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. I worked for the White House and Office of Counsel to the President. I was then a criminal defense lawyer for a few years. I then taught executive education, kind of nighttime MBA school, basically. I then ran a division of a promotional products company. Then I started an ad agency. I ran that for about 15 years. And while I was running my ad agency, I realized that many businesses spend a lot of time trying to get customers. What do we do for customer acquisition? But very few organizations spend time thinking about how do we keep our customers? And so that led me on this wonderful journey I've had over the last you know, decade plus of focusing on what happens in the first 100 days of the customer lifecycle. What can you do to create remarkable experiences that will keep your customers coming back for more? Love it. Yeah. And so for
1: those of you that don't know, um, Joey and I met a year ago plus a year and a half ago. um, And I watched him take an audience through, you know, that journey, that first hundred days. And it was just amazing to me, which is why I wanted to bring you on Joey and share this with family businesses, because one of the things that I know about, you know, having worked in the family business market space for so long is that Family businesses have one tool that oftentimes is missed, and that's that family businesses are trusted more by consumers than their non-family counterparts. So the the Edelman um, Trust Barometer does a, a research report every single, you know, every year. In 2019 was the latest one that they did on family businesses. Family businesses in the U.S. are trusted 78% of the time versus their non-family, global, you know, across the world, it's only 56%. That's a 22-point difference. And so, you know, the impact uh, of that is, one, if you're not telling, you know, people that you're family-owned, that's, you know, just a huge miss you know, immediately, because let everybody know it should be on the front page of your website. It should be part of your story that your family owned and operated. But then if you start to take that piece and include it with the things that Joey's going to be talking about, we're going to be, you know, sharing today. I think it's just a home run for
2: the family owned enterprise. Does that make sense? Michael, it more than makes sense. I mean, uh, preach brother. You know, I think at the end of the day, what, um, what happens in the human condition is when we start a business or when we come into a business, lots of times we think about scaling and growing and getting bigger. And there's such a uh, uh, an attitude in our society about uh, what are we doing to get bigger and let's go public and all of those things. And having been at companies that went public, oh my goodness, you know, you, you, don't, you don't want that curse. Yeah, I promise you. Uh, but the moral of the story here, I think is often, family businesses are a little sheepish about admitting that they're a family business. You know, to your point, they don't even say that they're family owned. Uh, Or if they do say it, they kind of almost make an apology for it when they say it. And then it doesn't really show up in their marketing materials. And as if the data that you just shared about how family businesses and family-owned businesses are more trusted uh, than their counterparts isn't compelling enough, I would posit that when it comes to the experiences you create for your customers, What all customers are looking for is a feeling of connection and belonging. And the best families that I know, connection and belonging is internal to their ethos. It's in their DNA as an operating system. And so when you when you think about who are your customers, I spend a lot of time with publicly traded companies and larger corporations trying to persuade them that caring about their customers is a good thing right? In a family-owned business, I feel like we already get that. We already get that we look out for other people that are kind of in our circle and in our family. And I would encourage folks that are not only listening to our show, but, you know, who might come along and uh, think about family businesses in general to double down on owning that identity and making that part of your conversations.
1: Love it. Yeah, that, I, I think it works both ways, too. What's, the, what's really neat about that is in the hiring side, you know, when you, most businesses, they're always saying, you know, what can I do to attract and retain employees? And it's when you treat them like family, uh, the family owned business, you know, you get that extra trust from the employee side as well. So like you said, double down and, you know, and make it happen for the
2: employees
1: experience as
2: well. Right. 100%. I think part of the challenge, Michael, is lots of times when an organization says we treat our people like family, uh, they're treating them like the dysfunctional families we see on sitcoms, right? They're not treating them with the the closeness and the care and the concern and the empathy and the connection that the best families have. I mean, you and I were talking earlier, you know, we share a common thread in that you have seven children and I'm one of seven children. And if there's anything that all my friends who grew up with me and my siblings, friends who used to be around the house, they will tell you that it's a different energy and vibe when you're part of a large family. And the larger your family, the more you realize that any plan that you had is completely out the window by 9 a.m. Like the plan is there's no such thing as planning. So talk about flexibility. Talk about being able to handle uncertainty. You know, larger families fit into that. And when we think about family businesses, uh, and I'm sure your, your listeners and you are much more familiar with the statistics. Than I am, most family businesses barely make it to generation two. And by generation three, everything's falling apart. And I think the reason everything is falling apart is because they've lost sight of the common bond that connected them when they started the business, i.e., that blood, DNA, family connection. And by the time we get down three generations, we're dealing with, for lack of a better way of putting it, childhood trauma that was never resolved on a therapist's couch or in a personal development seminar or in a quiet walk in the woods by yourself, thinking about yourself. And now that's playing out inside of the business. And we think that it's a functional problem with business. No, it's the human condition. It's just exacerbated or magnified in a family business setting because we have the, those DNA interactions that are happening on top of the functional roles and responsibilities in the organization interacting with each other.
1: Perfect. I couldn't have said it better myself. And you're, you're so right, because what, what happens there is we call that the the cousin generation when you get to the third generation. And so you have a bunch of individuals who did not grow up in the same house. They don't share the same values. They don't share, they didn't grow up exactly the same way. And so there is a lot of different, you know, pieces there. And what we tell people all the time when we're talking to them is that's the, that's the time we need to sit down and over-communicate when we're going from G2 to G3 or G3 to G4. And in every generation, they need to decide to work together again they need to make that commitment and find those shared values and say why what keeps us together besides blood at this point
2: exactly i mean it's almost like we see in our personal relationships people who've been married for a while will have a recommitment ceremony or you know we'll, we'll celebrate the anniversary of a marriage most businesses don't celebrate the anniversary of the business being created. They don't acknowledge it with the same uh, gravitas that we might acknowledge a family connection between two parents or a birthday or something like that. And it's like, folks, you're in the family business. There is no business on the planet that is more positioned for this type of celebration, acknowledgement, and kind of connection to the origin story than the family business. Agreed. So let's dive into, you know,
1: I love this, the idea of why the first 100 days are so important for both customers and employees. And I know we're gonna, you know, we're trying to tackle a lot here, but what are some of the things, why is it important, number one? And then two, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, family businesses can do to enhance the experience for both customers and employees?
2: Yeah, and I appreciate, Michael, And we're obviously there's a lot of different ways we could take this conversation and we could spend hours on just the customer side of this conversation or just the employee side of this conversation. So I'll do my best to distinguish between the two. But before we dive into that, let's pull into a thirty five thousand foot view of the human experience and the human condition. The reality is that as human beings, we are designed, we are more inclined for the chase than the catch. Most humans like dating more than they like being married. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm not positioning it. It's just there's more excitement. There's more variety. It's more interesting, or at least that's what people believe as they're going through this journey. When we think about our customers, when we think about our our employees, it's the same type of problem right? When we think about getting a new customer, we're excited, we're courting them, we're spending time persuading them, convincing them, showering them with affection and attention, and all the things that we wish we got more of as human beings. Same with an employee, we think about recruiting them, we think about, you know, making a good impression and getting them involved. But the second a new employee shows up on the job, or the second a new customer signs on the dotted line and officially transitions from being a prospect to being a customer, It's as if that chase has ended. And as a result, our enthusiasm about the relationship cuts dramatically. We're not sending the special little notes anymore. We're not sending the little, hey, thinking of you text messages. You know, suddenly it's like, oh, I'm taking you for granted. And the problem with that is that it only increases as time goes on. See, we're celebrating, oh, we we found the person for the position in an employee context, or we landed the new client and you know, bells are being rung and somebody might have won a trip to Napa or whatever it may be. We're we're excited, right? But on the employee side and on the customer side, they're thinking, did I make the right choice? You know, I was evaluating a few options and I decided to go this direction. But what if I chose wrong? In common parlance, this is buyer's remorse or hire's remorse in an employee setting, right? They're thinking, ooh, I just agreed to a longer term relationship with somebody that I think I know, but I'm not really sure that I know. And that delta between where we are saying, you know, woohoo, we got the client, we closed the deal, we're ready to go, we, we filled the position. And the lower level experience where they are of, oh, gosh, I hope this works out. But what if it doesn't? How bad is it going to be? If we don't close that difference, if we don't you know, reduce the delta between those two emotional states, we're in for big trouble because over time they only grow.
1: Got it. That's pretty, it's interesting. And it's, what I like what you said is it's the challenge of over time, it gets harder. So if yes. you're not intentional about it, you know it's it gets tough our employee base on my team has grown over the last 3 years like doubled and you know it's we're still not a big team but one of the things that you know we had a habit of on our monday morning meetings adding in you know how was your weekend and everybody would go around and talk about their weekend just to try to have that connection piece and one of the things that we you know, that i noticed is that you know it was getting that one question was getting kind of stale. Sure. So we threw in a a new question this week and the conversation and the, the question was um, tell us about an experience that you had when you were a little kid. And so we all shared, we went around and, and, and and round Robin that and, and did that. And what it did was it just, it, you know, it shared some great stories. It connected us. It's that, you know, it's those stories and that's that sharing that makes that family business connect. And that's we want always, you know, being a, a company that serves family businesses, we want to make sure that internally we feel that way as well. And so that was something that we did.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that, Michael, because uh, we need to recognize that the more we have the same conversation, the less engaged we are about that conversation. That applies in a sales context, too. If you're using the same sales script and get leaning into the same conversations, I don't care how good a salesperson you are. After a couple months, years, decades, I can tell you're giving me a script. Enough already, that's what we, so what keeps you up at night? Yeah, you know, come on, enough with that. Like everybody asks the same questions, let's get away from that. I'm much more interested at this point in my life about having the conversations that get deep into who are you? Why do you think and believe and see the world the way that you do? And what has happened over your life to create the blueprint or the lens by which you view the planet? when we pull on those threads, not only do we get more to the core of who we are as human beings, but they're more exciting and more interesting conversations. You know, uh, it mentioned, you know, sitting around the dinner table and, you know, kind of family conversations. At our house, we have a variety of different questions that we'll ask. I have two boys. I have a seven year old and a five year old. And so some of the questions we'll ask is, uh, what's something that you learned today? That's it. So you could ask your employees. What's something that you learned last week? Or we play a game called best, worst, weirdest. What was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? What was the weirdest part of your day? And what it does is it gives permission for conversations of unexpected moments of delight or insight. Either way, there's going to be value to your culture and to your connection with the people you're speaking with. That's. I love that you
1: do that. Um, my wife taught me to do that with the kids, and you know what was we did not do the weirdest, and so I'm <laughs> going to share that we did best and worst parts of your day highlights, you know highlights low low lights, uh, but we will definitely I'm going to adopt that one if you don't mind. I'll steal. Oh, that.
2: absolutely, please, please. So is it, it, now all right to start talking about that first hundred days. I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, and, and, and thanks for bringing me back to the conversation, Michael, there's so much of this that is about psychology and human dynamics. Let's let's get, throw out a couple of uh, key numbers that I think will resonate with your listeners across all industries. Globally, small, medium, and large product versus service, international versus domestic. We looked at all businesses around the world of any size, scale, and you know, and, and formation structure that you might imagine. And what we found is that somewhere between twenty and seventy percent of new customers will decide to quit doing business with you, to leave either actually or mentally check out before the one hundred day anniversary. Twenty to seventy percent. Now let's flip it over to the employee side of the conversation. 4% of new employees show up for work the first day and don't come back the second day. 4% across all industries, 45% don't make the three-month anniversary. 45%. Now, I want to take these two things and say, why is it that people who have decided to do business with us, who have decided to come work with us, leave before the 100-day anniversary? The reason that all the research and analysis shows is that there isn't a systematic onboarding process. There isn't a structure and a framework in place that takes them from being brand new to feeling a sense of acclimation and adoption within the organization. There's gonna be a ramp up period for all of us. We understand that. The problem is most organizations decide to let employees and their customers navigate that ramp up process on their own. That's a mistake. We've got to hold their hand. We've got to spend more time. And if you commit to spending more time in the first hundred days and you get to day 101 and the typical employee or the typical customer is feeling great about the relationship on day 101, in the average business, they will stay for five years. Wow. So I'm not asking you to sprint forever, Michael. I'm not asking you to hold their hand all day, every day. I'm just saying in this very beginning part, Can we give it a little more attention, a little more focus, a little more energy, a little more structure to make sure that we build a solid foundation, that we make deposits in the karmic bank account for this relationship so that later when things go awry, oh, and by the way, they're going to, things aren't going to go as planned. Welcome to life. Welcome to business. We've made enough deposits in the karmic bank account that we have some credit we can draw against. What happens is if we don't make those deposits and things start to go wrong, we're at a deficit before the first thing goes wrong. And when the first thing goes wrong, oh, goodness, they're out the door.
1: Right. That makes such good sense. And it's, you know, people a lot of times think about systems and processes as canned Well, I I will tell you, you know, and, and so they don't do it because, oh, well, that's canned. Well, just walk through Starbucks, walk through, you know, Disney World and look at all the canned things that they do that make you have that right feeling and that right emotion that they want you to have as you're going through their park or their store or their
2: shop, whatever it is. Absolutely, Michael. Some might call them canned. I call them consistent. Yeah. And at the end of the day, in a world where uncertainty is more prevalent than at any other time in modern human history. I mean, we're recording this, you know, we're waist deep. We're coming up on year one of the COVID pandemic, you know, the one year anniversary. Most people are completely exhausted. Most people's lives have been turned upside down, whether that's practically in losing your job or losing your business or just emotionally and psychologically in losing your connection to friends and family, the physical proximity that you had pre-pandemic we're in a situation where humans are craving something that feels feels familiar something that feels consistent so guess what if you've ever thought about experimenting with something that seemed a little canned now's the time to do it because your audience is desperate for this type of certainty they're desperate to know that their interactions with you are going to be consistent
1: and so talk about you know if you will what are some of the ways that people can be consistent? What are some of the, you know, how, do, what are those touch points? What are those ways to connect?
2: Yeah. So there's, a, what's fascinating about this conversation, Michael, is there are as many ways to connect as you can conceive of. As a business owner or an operator or somebody operating in a family business, uh, we are only limited by the uh, scope and uh, the the depths of our imagination and our creativity. So I believe that customers go through an eight-phase journey. I also believe that employees go through the same eight-phase journey. So I'll speak very briefly about what that journey looks like, and then we can dive specifically into some uh, tactical action steps people can take. The first phase is the assess phase, when a customer or a prospective employee is considering whether or not they want to do business with you, whether they want to join your team. They're looking at your marketing materials, your website. There may be some pitch meetings or sales meetings, uh, you know, maybe some interviews. They're considering what's going on. We then move to phase two, the admit phase. This is the first day in the first 100 days journey, right? In the admit phase, the prospect decides that they have a problem or a need that they believe your organization can help them with. They sign on the dotted line. They hand over their hard earned cash. They officially transition from being a prospect to being a customer. On the employee side, they accept your job offer they say, I'm going to come work for you. We then go to phase three, the affirm phase. Now, this one we already talked about earlier. This is that buyer's remorse or hire's remorse stage where there's the gap between when they sign on the dotted line and when they show up for the first major interaction with you. In most organizations, Michael, nothing happens during this time period. How many times have you ever accepted a job or a position where from the day they hired you to your first day on the job, there was a gap where you didn't hear from them? And you were wondering, geez, what do I have to wear on my first day? What's the culture like? What's the first day going to look like? What am I going to do? Your customers are the same way. They're like, hey, I signed up for the product or I signed up for the service, but when am I going to start to get delivered on that? What, what homework do I have to do in advance? How am I going to make this success, a successful engagement? All too often, that remorse period isn't because of anything we're actually doing as an organization, it's from our lack of doing anything. It's the cue tumbleweed moment of, wait, what's happening here? There's nothing happening? Uh Uh-oh. I'm left to my own devices and the conversations I want to have in my own mind, which let's be honest, we don't want to leave folks to their own devices this early in the relationship. It's a recipe for problems. We then come to phase four, the activate phase. This is the first real moment of truth. In an employee setting, it's their first day on the job. In the customer setting, it's their first kickoff meeting or when they receive the product in the mail, whatever it may be that is their first real moment of truth with what they purchased. Now, let's be candid, Michael. Most businesses, at least on the customer side, do a pretty good job in the activate stage. They've given some thought to the kickoff meeting or the unboxing experience or whatever it may be. As a general rule on the employee side, it's kind of a train wreck. Because usually the first day is, hey, we're going to review some HR paperwork. We're going to have you fill out a bunch of forms at the same time. We're going to put you in a conference room by yourself to watch some training videos and read some stuff. And we'll come back to take you to lunch with five people who didn't want to go to lunch with you anyway. And you don't know any of them. But guess what? You're going to feel part of our family. Friends. We know better than this. Why are we subjecting employees on their first day to scenarios and situations that those of us who have been with the firm or the organization for a long time don't want to be involved with at all? Huge problem we then come to phase five, the acclimate phase. This is where everybody's getting used to this new way of living, this new way of doing business. In the employee stage, this is them getting used to the job, the roles, the responsibility, the technology, their coworkers, et cetera. In the customer stage, this is them getting used to your product or your service, the way you like to communicate with them, the frequency of communication, how they're actually starting to take advantage of this thing that they purchased. In the acclimate phase, this is where we need to double down on that handholding. This is where most businesses fall off the wagon, right? They lose the focus that they had in the sales process and getting you up and running. And they're like, good luck, figure it out, friends. That's why we fail to acclimate, because we don't hold their hand. If and only if, if we've done those five phases, Michael, we come to phase six the accomplished phase. This is when the customer or the employee accomplishes the goal they had when they originally decided to do business with us. As an employee, they're living their life in this new position, they feel confident about it, they're excited about it. In the customer side of the equation, they've accomplished the goal that they had. Either your product is working the way it had promised, they're able to get the end result they wanted on the service side, whatever it may be. The crazy thing is most businesses don't even know what the accomplished finish line is for either their customers or their employees. And if you don't even know what they're striving for, how can you help them celebrate when you actually achieve it? And if you don't celebrate with them, guess what? Spoiler alert, they're not going to celebrate themselves, which means they're going to think, I'm not really sure this was worth it. We have to remind them why it was worth it, why they had this vision of what their life would look like when they accomplished their goal. And we, whether in the employee context or the customer context, help them achieve that. We then come to phase seven, the adopt phase. This is when they're loving it. They're in, they're bought in, they're committed to us. They're a loyal customer. They're a loyal and engaged employee. And last but not least, phase eight, the advocate phase, where they become a raving fan singing our praises far and wide. They're referring new business to us on the customer side. They're referring new employees to us on the employee side. Either way, they've become an advocate for our brand, for what we stand for, for our our mission, for our message. Those are the eight phases. Now, here's the crazy thing. I know that was a fire hose description. And that's what your new customers and your new employees feel like. We fire hose them with the content. We give them an instruction manual for the product that they're not gonna read anyway because it's too darn long. We give them a bunch of paperwork on their first day on the job and they're not gonna read it. They're gonna take it home and throw it away because they're embarrassed to throw it away in the office. And they're going to learn by trial and error. And by the way, anybody that's learning by trial and error, there's often a lot more error than trial. And so what can we do to create the systems in the process that will allow us to help them navigate through these eight phases?
1: Love it. Then, you know, it's you did it, that is a fire hose and appreciate that. So, again, I will throw out to everybody a copy of Joey's book, Never Lose a Customer Again should be on your desktop and with all of your team members because you're going to want to go back through and we have done this in our office Joey is to go back through and say okay what phases are we in right now what's going on where we're at and and we're working really hard to build those pro- systems and processes we did an I did an article or was interviewed by I can't remember Financial Advisor IQ magazine or something back in 2012 or 13 and what we talked about was how, when I went through two thousand seven, eight, nine, eight, nine, which was a, a it, it was a nightmare for us. Sure. And then, and so you got, you know, the, the aftermath of all that. I, what I realized is that we were, we were like state fair. We were not Disney world. Yeah. And that was, that was, you know, we didn't have the systems and processes. We were ad hoc and making it up. And so it was, It was ugly and it it was a tough time for our business but you know what we learn more from the mistakes than you do from all of the successes and so through that mistake through all of the things that happened there we came out bigger better stronger and did some really incredible systems and processes for the things that we do with clients you know to make that planning process you know, enjoyable and fun and where they really, you know, got it, got into it. And then to make sure that years two, three, five, ten, 10, you know, we want the lifetime of that customer. They understand why they're working with us. And I, again, I go back and say systems and processes set me free.
2: Absolutely. That's- you know, and I'll, and I'll be honest by you. I used to be a guy who felt that systems and processes were the mark of a small mind, They were the mark of somebody who wasn't creative, who wasn't able to, you know, roll with the punches and handle the craziness of business. No systems and processes are the mark of a grown up. (laughs) of a mature organization that says you know what if we have the structure and system in place we will be able to navigate the unforeseen scenarios the uncertain scenarios because so many things will be operating from a clear structure you know it's fascinating when we think about onboarding and how we navigate these things some really interesting research around onboarding new employees now michael what i often ask business owners is when you hire a new employee How long do you want them to stay? It's usually they want them to stay until they start to earn more money than they cost to get on board. And in my experience, they also want them to stay long term because hiring somebody new isn't isn't that fun. So they want them to stay at least a year and probably several years. Now, let's look at the time spent actually onboarding new employees across all industries. 20% of industries spend a day. 38% of industries spend a week. So we're now at 58% of all businesses spend one week or less onboarding their new employees. When we take it up to a month, we add another 27%. So for those of you keeping score at home and oh, you're gonna make me do the math, aren't you? That'd be 65, 75, 85, 85% of companies spend less than a month onboarding. Now, I don't need to get into the fact that only 1% one percent, spend a year, but you want them to stay for multiple years and yet you're barely willing to spend a month? There's some huge insight there that if we're asking for a commitment from our employees that is longer than a month, maybe we should be willing to train them for longer than a month. Yeah. Something and- to think about.
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's perfect. And the same thing
2: goes for the customer. When you start to think about that, how long do you want your customer for? A hundred percent. I'd like them to stay forever until I decide that I'm done with business. I would like them to continue to be one of my clients, one of my customers. But again, that same thing are you willing to invest the time and the commitment? You know, we talked about family business and parenting and kind of how those things connect. I saw a really interesting quote the other day that I'm not sure who it came from, Uh, but they said, do you know how kids spell love? T-I-M-E. And I thought to myself, I can take the word kids and substitute customers, employees, humans, time matters being willing to spend time with people focusing on them and what they need to feel comfortable to feel appreciated to be feel engaged to feel involved that is an investment that has a, a return that not only is long lasting but is exponentially greater than the time you're spending on the front end I know it doesn't feel that way at the beginning. As a fellow business owner, I get it. I have a new employee come on and I'm like, oh my gosh, am I really going to spend this time? But we've got a new employee transitioning uh, in our organization right now. And somebody asked me, they're like, are you okay with them doing this and kind of taking over these roles and responsibilities? And I was like, we're going to have to have a long conversation about how much time we're going to spend working on them and how much time I'm going to spend working with them. It's going to be a minimum of hours per week. We're going to measure it in hours per week for a minimum of three months. Minimum. That's just for me to feel a a base level comfort zone with where we're at. And so I get it that it's a huge commitment. I get that it's a big responsibility. But aren't we expecting big things from them? Yeah. It'll be, you know, it's like you want your kids to grow up to be good kids. You think you can just spend, hell, oh, let's have a five-minute conversation here and you're good. This is gonna be fabulous when you turn 18. No, you gotta spend the time.
1: Right. It's, you talk about that and it's Brene Brown just pops into my head and she says, you know, she, her team made her start to say, paint done for me. Well, yeah. what's going through my head right now is you bring in this new employee and you paint done for them once they have no idea what that means. And so, you know, it is the time. You really do have to spend the time with them. And, and the same thing with a customer. Spend the time with them so they understand what done looks like and, you know, what, why this relationship is so powerful that you and the customer together can do great things together if we have discussions and understand what, you know, painting done for them looks like.
2: Absolutely. And let's recognize, and I say this from a place of respect, I liken this stuff to dating. When you start dating someone for the first time, guess what you get? All the baggage of everyone else they dated. They're presuming that things from their past relationships are going to show up the same way in this relationship. Now, sometimes that's to your advantage. Many times that's to your disadvantage. New customers and new employees are the same way. We're saying, well, here's what done looks like. Let's, let's paint done for you. And they're going, yeah, but you know what done was in my last vendor relationship? You know what done was with my last manager? No, we don't because we haven't taken the time to ask. And now we're digging out of the PTSD that they're still suffering from the last relationship is now showing up in our relationship. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. That's the human condition. Where I do put some value judgment on it is once we know this, as an organization as leaders if we don't do anything to address it it moves from being their problem to our problem and it moves from being shame on them for bringing that baggage into the relationship to shame on us for not addressing it
1: yeah that's such a powerful you know message and make sure people hear that what you're saying is you know in the beginning of this relationship it would be really useful to say What was it like for you in your previous relationships? What was going on for you? What did you like? What didn't you like? And so maybe one, you can learn some things that you're not doing that they liked that everybody probably would like. And then there may be some things to make sure that you avoid and at
2: least acknowledging those pieces. A hundred percent, Michael. And I get that some of these conversations may feel awkward to have. I get it. And I encourage you to lean into them. Quick story. My wife and I, we've been married for 10 years. When we started dating, she had actually known the person I had dated right before that. We had been we had kind of all been in a similar social circle and she had known who that person was. And we were into dating probably about two months. And my now wife, who was then girlfriend, says to me, can we talk about person X, this other person? And I got nervous, Michael. I was like, oh, Lordy, where's this going? And my wife said, what worked about that relationship and what didn't work about that relationship? Because I want to know what works for you and what doesn't work for you because I'm liking this relationship and I'd like it to continue. So I thought, oh, well, fantastic. But I think we spend so much time in our lives thinking that we've got to figure this out in our own minds without asking the other person, you know, whereas it would be so much easier if we just sat down and said, hey, what's going on for you? Mm. What are you thinking? What are you looking for? You know, instead of these, you know, rote interview questions of where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five months? What do you hope to learn on this job? What do, you, what do you hope to not have happen in this new job? Let's have the conversation and be willing to share that as well. Share our answers to that question. So I'm the owner talking to a new employee. You know what I hope we don't have to do is, for example, have something be happening that's bothering you that you don't tell me until it's too late. Mm-hmm. That's what I hope doesn't happen. I'd rather know when something is sparking than when it's a raging inferno. And so one of the core values in our organization is come to the table with the spark, not the raging inferno. And what it does is it moves the conversations forward when we have a lot more options for how to navigate them instead of, oh my gosh, it's a three alarm fire, everybody shut everything down, grab a bucket of water and do your best. It's like we, we can, it's impossible to foreshadow everything that's gonna happen. What we can do is create an environment where people feel comfortable coming to the table with their thoughts, their observations, their concerns early on, and that they feel heard. Now, normally when I tell business owners this, Michael, especially family business owners, they say, oh, Joey, what's this going to cost me? It's going to cost you some time, and it may cost you some money. Because what you want to do is you want to give your employees examples early on that if they come to the table with a good idea or an observation of a blind spot that you have, that the organization addresses it. They work on it. They don't just say, well, yeah, our website's always been bad. That's just the nature of our business. No, no, no. If they say the website's bad, you say, great, you know, this has been something that's been plaguing us for a while. Would you be willing to help take some leadership on this? Tell me three things that we can fix. And I want to broken into categories. Uh, the first one, I want something that we can fix for free that only involves an investment of time. The second one, I want something that involves an investment of time plus money. The third one, I want to be an investment that only involves money. And I want you to know, tell me how much you think it'll cost or what it is, get some quotes. You've now just empowered an employee to take action. And guess what? As the business owner, you can come back and realize, wow, this thing that has been I've known has been a problem for a long time. Now I've got somebody who's interested in it. And what do you think that does to their morale when they're brand new on the job in their first month and they're like, gosh, I went to my boss's boss's boss with an idea I had. And don't you know, things happened. Things changed. I have a voice. Man, that's not like the previous relationships I've had. And now we're off to the races.
1: Right. You know, it, it's interesting. I want to talk about that just a little bit more because a lot of times within a family business, one of the things that happens is there is a wall that gets put up between the family who owns and manages the business and the employees. And what you just talked about is not just knock, you know, knocking down that wall and opening those conversations. And one of the things that I think families miss in that discussion is that it's not that the employees are going to, you know, dictate direction. It's just that if they wanted to go and start a business, they would have done that you know themselves. They want a job. They want to help the family name be better. They want the business to, to be better. They enjoy working for the family. And so, you know, if we can take that wall down and, and like we said in the beginning, make them part of the family, feel a part of the family. And that would be one way to do that is to have an open door policy and listen to ideas and let them come to you. It just goes... I, Multiple, multiple times, you know, that it will pay dividends. And-
2: Absolutely, you know, Michael, it's so fascinating, and and I get it. Starting a business is incredibly difficult. Oh man, it is hard. It, it, you know, and and I liken, uh, you know, starting a business to if you decide to have children and you start to have children, you know, those those first few months are amazing and delightful, and. It's like being a prisoner of war. I mean, you know, the Geneva Convention prohibits sleep deprivation as a torture technique, and yet that is the number one torture technique of all newborn babies. They subject their parents to sleep deprivation, right? And so we look at this and we think, oh my gosh, is it really worth it? What are we doing? Look how crazy this is. Here's the thing. Don't let the moniker of family business be an exclusionary moniker in your business don't let it be well there's the family there's the people who are the blood relatives and then there's these other people you're either a family or you're not Mm. end of story and if you're a family guess what that means you have to be open to new people joining the family whether they join them through marriage, through adoption, through birth, whatever it may be, new people are going to join your family and a business is going to have them joining at an exponentially greater rate than a nuclear family, you know, having kids or, you know, getting married or adding new family members that way. So I think at the end of the day, It's important to recognize that these are people who want to join your family. They are not coming to take your family. They are coming to be part of your family and to feel that energy and vibe. And we only need to look at divorce statistics and home loneliness statistics to see that most people aren't super excited about the family they were born into. Okay? Most people, this whole concept of chosen family, which is increasingly becoming a moniker that we see on social media and in entrepreneurial conversations, a business is a chosen family. In fact, you probably spend more time with your chosen family at work than you do with your blood family at home. So let's make that family the optimal definition of family as opposed to the lesser than definition of family.
1: Perfect. The chosen family, we call it the family of affinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really neat because, you know, we, we've seen it play out several times. You know, when you do estate planning work in the work, you know, in some of the work that we do, it's, I want to make sure that my assets flow down my the, to, the, to my blood relatives. I just want to make sure that, it, you know, everything goes that way. Well, be, you know, then they, and they get mm-hmm. stuck on the blood, but they forget the fact that when they got married originally, husband and wife, whatever the, the
2: relationship, they weren't blood. That correct. One, they that's correct. They were legally family. prohibited. They were legally prohibited from marrying blood. Most people don't understand that's why you get a blood test. (laughs) In most jurisdictions, the reason why they have to get a blood test before you can get a marriage license is because they have these thoughts of, gosh, we don't want somebody to marry someone who's actually part of the same family. So you're spot on, Michael. And what amazes me is how quickly people are to gather around this concept of, well, this is the family. But if I were to go and ask each of the individual members of that family to list out the members of the family you know what we'll find? The list will be different. Not only will the list potentially be different on the number of names on the list, but they absolutely positively will be different in terms of the priority in which those names are listed. If you doubt the validity of that concept, I encourage you to grab the people in your family business today and say, hey, we're going to do a little exercise. Take out a sheet of paper, Write down the names of everybody in this family. And then be quiet. And then after about three or four minutes, collect all the list and look and see. If everybody wrote all the same names in the same order, message me, joey at joeycoleman.com. Send me an email because I want you to pick my lottery numbers because <laughs> you're, you're on to something amazing, right? It, this is the human condition. This is why people ask me, they're like, wait a second, Joey, customer experience, employee experience, those are two. No, it's all human experience, friends. It's all human experience. I don't care whether it's a family business or a publicly traded business. I don't care whether you're an employee or a customer. We're all humans doing the best we can. That's a really great point. And it's just focusing in on
1: what, you know, what would you want? What, what do you Or ask them what they want. They're, everybody's different. It's, it's okay to have some things that are a little different. You know, this time that we're in right now, as you mentioned before, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of this next week. We were supposed to be heading to the Caribbean. That's not happening.
2: Oh, I'm sorry, Michael. <laughs> I know, you know, there's so many people who had, had this vision of how long this would take and where it would be. And, and And I think if there is a good thing and let's be clear, there have been some absolute there have been countless numbers of tragedies that have happened in the last year because of this pandemic. But if there is a little silver lining, I think we're going to appreciate travel more. I think we're going to appreciate a night at a restaurant more. I think we're going to appreciate going to the movies more. I think we're going to appreciate heading over to a friend's house on an afternoon to watch a ball game more. If, if there's something that I want us to just grab onto and hold, it's those connections that we've been missing in the last year that when the pandemic is over and subsided, that we're able to go re-engage again.
1: Yeah. hundred percent thinking about this in terms of the family business and our customers and our employees, do you have any stories or, you know, have you seen, you know, what people are doing during these uncertain times to utilize the, the fact that we are in a pandemic, but they're taking advantage of it differently.
2: Yeah, so this, this is such a, a beautiful question, Michael. And my answer, um, for everyone listening, in the beginning, you might think that my answer doesn't apply to you. And I'd love it if you just wait till the end because I promise it does. And I know this for a fact. The businesses that have navigated this pandemic well and will continue to navigate well put empathy before solutions. Now, what's fascinating is a lot of people think they know what empathy means, when the reality is they're confusing it with sympathy. The words sound similar, but they're very different. From a place of empathy, we don't feel sorry for the person that they're going through this challenging time. We actually feel the challenging time that they're going with. We're on the same side of the table as them. I don't know anyone on the planet, Michael, who hasn't been dramatically and drastically affected by this pandemic. Now, I was talking to a business owner the other day who his business is up 3X, 3X, because his business does online credit card processing. Mm. So his business has exploded and he feels bad. He feels guilty. He's embarrassed because he doesn't want to tell his other business owner friends whose businesses are down 20%, 40%, 80%, that he's doing well. So the reality here is everybody, even the people who are quote unquote hashtag winning at life, you know, doing a good job, having things go their way, feel awkward about that. They feel guilty about that. They feel embarrassed about that. If you wanted one thing you could do, in your business this week that would dramatically increase the long-term success of your business. Pick a customer, call them unexpectedly, Zoom call or phone call, and say, I just wanted to have a call to check in on how you're doing. And then be quiet and let them talk. And if they're a little shy and they're a little sheepish and they give you kind of a, a trite answer of like, oh, things are going pretty well, how about you? Go first. Say, well, you know, in many ways, things are going well. I'm still here. I'm still alive. But in many ways, this last year has been the hardest year of my life. I've had to let some people go. I haven't been able to see loved ones. I've dealt with X. I've dealt with Y. Go first. Explain first what's gone on in your life. I promise you what you will find is that opens a door for them to give an answer that isn't the surface answer. When we lead from a place of empathy. And we go into those conversations and we just focus on listening. And that's why I say empathy before solutions. We don't come up with, the well, Michael, what you should have been doing is blah, blah, blah. Hey, by the way, if you were to join our program today, we could help you build a thing that would get your business. No, no, no. Empathy, 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 empathy. Wait for them to say, do you have any ideas for what I could do? Do you have any suggestions? Wait for them to ask for the solution before you provide the solution. Before, just provide the empathy. Start having empathy calls. Have empathy conversations with your employees. Hey, how are you actually doing? I know you tell me you're excited to be working from home, but I'm working from home, and I'm trying to find a place that's quiet because my kids are being homeschooled because of the pandemic, and I've got other people, you know, it's just, it's loud, And I don't have the commute to get away and decompress and alone time is non-existence anymore. And our, you know, everybody talks about their home being their castle. Our castles have become cages, right? Let's have the honest, serious conversation. Let's put what we're going through up for discussion. I promise you the outcomes will be grander than you ever could imagine.
1: I I love it. You know, it's, it's the old, the old rule, right? People don't care how much, you know, they want to know how much you care. And if you if you're going to start that practice, this is a great year to engage in those conversations. And then the secret will be don't stop.
2: Yes, this exactly. Is this, this isn't st- a tactic to navigate the pandemic. Right. This is a life skill to make you a better human. <laughs> Period. Right. And and some people may hear a sense of judgment in my voice. No, I'm trying to bring a sense of importance and significance to this observation. Right. The better we are at creating human connection, the better life we will live professionally, personally, inside, outside that this is why, why else are we doing this?
1: Yeah, well, that's when when this all started, we started doing these as webinars. And we it, with the idea being that we just knew that we were scared. You know what I mean? So if we're scared, then the people that we serve are scared and other people are, are, are nervous about what's going on. So we I was doing the webinars and I burned out. And I, I'm like, I can't do a webinar. I can't create another thing about cash flow or empathy or connection or what do we do during all of this stuff every single week? And so I you know, I was working with a coach myself and he said. Why don't you you you've got a laundry list of people that you have met and know and trust and can can add value. Why don't you just turn this into a podcast? And the podcast was was born. And here we are with you know with Joey Coleman. And what are we talking about? And what are we doing? We're we're connecting, you know. I didn't know that you had grew up in a family of seven. I and I had seven kids. And so it's just more of those connection points. So this is this has been beyond fun. Um, I wanna wanna reiterate, make sure that your leadership teams have a copy of Joey's book, Never Lose a Customer Again. Um, You know what? I've got a surprise question for you that I didn't talk to you about. One of the things that take, if you don't mind, I know that writing that book based on a story that I found was really difficult for you. Do you mind sharing that for a second?
2: Yeah, th- there, there are a number of ways we could take this, Michael. Could you tell me which part of the story? Because there, there were a lot of aspects that were difficult about this book, and I'm happy to address any of them.
1: Yeah, just that the, you didn't think that, you know, the information that you had needed to be shared. You procrastinated. Yeah. And it took yeah, somebody yeah. to kick you to totally. say, you know, put this together.
2: Totally. So a little bit of background on this book. I had been speaking on the topic of the importance of the first 100 days and consulting on this topic for well over a decade. In the back of my mind, thinking at some point I want to write a book. And I was hosting an event and I hired a speaker to come in and talk about the value of writing books Your business. And he's a friend of mine, a guy by name of Tucker Max. And Tucker gets up in front of the stage. This is at my high end mastermind event, right? He's the final speaker on the final day. And he's got an hour and a half to talk about the value of books. And he gets on stage and he says, Joey, thanks for that introduction. Before I get started, when in the beep, 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 and he starts cursing. Are you gonna write your book? i'm thinking this is not value for my audience what are you doing and he's like no this is ridiculous he's like i've implemented the ideas in your book it's helped grow our business we all you know half the people in the room have implemented the ideas that could be in your book and it's great and he basically publicly shamed me into writing the book okay so i said if i agree to write the book will you stop talking about me writing the book if i publicly commit right here and can we get on with it he said yes i said great commitment made let's go so then we started working on writing the book and he has a business called Stri- Scribe at the time it was called book in a box. It's now called Scribe that helps entrepreneurs get the ideas out of their head and onto paper because entrepreneurs really good at having ideas. Not so good at sitting down in front of the keyboard and writing their ideas down for other people. And we got into the process and I got a big book deal from a major publisher. Who said they liked the idea and they wanted more. And I started working on the book. And I quit doing the phone calls with the team to write the book. And the reason I quit doing the calls is I didn't believe that the message was that valuable. And part of the reason I didn't believe that the message was that valuable, Michael, is because of this concept I have. Um, If I were to ask you, everybody who's listening, if I were to ask you to make a list of the 50 things you are best at in the world and to write all 50 of those things down. And I was to give you the time to go through. And then you were to share your list with me. You know wouldn't be what wouldn't be on the list? Breathing. No one's going to write breathing as one of their top 50 skills. And yet, it is the thing you have been doing since the moment you came into the world. You have done it morning, noon, and night, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Your entire life you've been breathing. You do it so well and so often you don't even think about it. This is the problem when we get into our whether we want to call it expertise, our experience, the thing that we can share with others. To us, it has become like breathing. I don't understand why people don't get that taking care of your customers and taking care of your employees is a good thing. It drives me crazy. I'm like, how do you you not get it? Because I can't see the world in any other way. It is breathing to me. And everybody who's listening, there are aspects of your business that are breathing to you. But it's not breathing to your employees and it's not breathing to your customers. And when I acknowledged my fears around this, when I acknowledged my concerns about this, when I acknowledged my struggle about this, things got better. I felt more interested in sharing the stories. I got a nice little positive feedback loop and then I wrote the book and then the book sold well and then it continued to sell well. And here we are three years later and the book is still selling better than the publisher and everybody else had imagined. Not because I'm some genius and that's not at all what I'm trying to say here because I was willing to say, hey, this thing that to me is breathing might not be breathing to everyone else. And let me create something that can stand the test of time. Let me create something that reaches more people than I'll ever be able to reach as a speaker on stage or as a consultant working with individual companies. Let me create something that 100 years after I'm dead and gone, you can still go to a library or a bookshelf in a company And find a copy of never lose a customer again and the principles hold true and why do they hold true because they're written about the human condition
1: i'm raising the roof the joey that phenomenal i really appreciate the time that you've spent with us um if somebody wanted to reach out and talk to you about consulting or other things? How do they reach you?
2: Yeah. So the best place to find me, Michael, is on my website, joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old, you know, Uh, Joey Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation, joeycoleman.com. On there, you'll find videos. You'll find information about my consulting and my speaking. There's a contact form. You can send it in. We'll get back to you. I'm on a mission, Michael, to raise the bar on customer experience and employee experience. The bar is lying on the ground. The secret right now is not to trip over the bar because it's on the ground. You don't have to high jump this thing. You don't have to get a running start. You just have to be willing to lift your foot a little bit higher than it currently is and step into a world of creating remarkable experiences for your customers and your employees. And when we do that, when your business does that, when the people listening to our conversation today, when their business does that, All boats rise together because then the person who does business with you and says, gosh, that was an amazing experience. They're going to expect the same from their auto mechanic and from the restaurant that they get their takeout from and the grocery store they do business with and the other businesses and companies and folks that they interact with. They're going to expect a higher level of standard care, a higher level of service, a higher level of experience. And as a result, it's going to call all of us to be the best version of ourselves we can. Ladies and gentlemen, say
1: thank you to Joey Coleman with me. Joey, appreciate you being here. My name is Michael Columbus. This has been the family biz show and uh, I'm Family Wealth and Legacy is the name of our company in Rochester, New York. We look forward to having you back
2: again next time. Oh, thanks, thanks Michael. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show.
1: The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.